Welcome back to another episode of a podcast written by a software engineer. I'm joined by the lovely Amin today, and I can't wait to get into what's going on. Amin, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Thanks for being on the show, actually. No, you're welcome. Um, yeah, I mean, just a common thing. I met you at Hirespace when we were both working there. But um, you have quite, I guess, an interesting and unique path as well in terms of you are currently a finance manager. And uh, I, I think it's just a very interesting point because we both work at different startups. You've also had the time to work at bigger companies, so you could definitely see the difference between those two. So I'm pretty sure we're going to be able to talk all about, all about that uh, coming up. But um, I mean, for the people who don't know you, actually, I guess, can you give us a brief, brief description of what you do, what you've been doing? and? Uh... So currently, I'm a finance manager at a startup that's in digital advertising, and they do what's called programmatic advertising. And programmatic advertising is, in a nutshell, using technology to purchase ad space. So if you're really interested, for example, like buying trainers and you've been Googling Adidas trainers all evening and you're like got your eyes set on them and the next thing you know, every single website has an advert on the sidebar or on the main page with the Adidas trainers that you've been looking for and you're like, okay, somebody's obviously spying on me. That is essentially what programmatic advertisers do. They use your cookie information to notice what you websites you've been looking at and essentially go through the auction process to buy the ad space of say the website that you go on later to try and get you to eventually click through onto the ad and then if it makes a sale like a revenue sale from the ad that's uh, that's a really great point because remember... can i just say it took me sort of several months to fully understand this because yeah. it was very 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 um um technical very technical and um yeah yeah I'm, I'm glad you wrote this whole description down on your paper right now and just reading off of it and i'm kidding i'm kidding this is all coming from this is all off right the dome now. by the way no. yeah all off the top of your head you know but that's really good because i think the term that people use for this is personalized ads so whatever you do like it kind of just follows you a bit it's like a footprint that you have on the internet and people are able to like have personal eyes for ads for whatever you buy so the other day I bought some contacts and next thing you know, like every other ads that I come across are about contacts at the end. So. Yeah, I think it's, it's um, essentially advertisers are trying to get to you. So in the older days, they'll get a billboard and put it up on a, on a motorway or they would put an advert out in the newspaper. But the, the way that sort of advertising mediums change and the way we consume content change over the years and it's especially now is it's it's not comparable to what you know admin used to do and before it's it's all very sort of digital now it's all very online um so it's a whole different ballpark they're essentially doing the same thing that they would have done decades ago i.e we've got a campaign or a brand or a message that we want to sell to you whether it's like razors or trainers or experiences or holidays you name it but it's just that the methods have changed significantly and it's, it's a lot more yeah. technical. And when you see it's kind of like a model, and if a model works, you have all these like, people getting onto it, there's there bound to be some sort of competition and you have these different strategies that people wouldn't take. Mm -hmm. So we could definitely dive into that when we get to that. Uh, but I always love going back a bit a bit of uh, what, what is Amin back in the day? So um, you have quite a, I guess, a really good lengthy finance background and that kind of where did that all start did i start doing uni or did you always have like a background in that in high school where did that come from well i've, I've said it to other people who like have laughed at me but um i used to we do gcse's and you know you're canadian i don't know what you guys do but um <laughs> nothing <laughs> no um 
So I remember the only sort of GCSE that I sort of nailed, which was on really a great GCSE, was business studies. Any, okay. G- any GCSE that does the word studies in it is not really of any rep- repute. So, so business studies was one that sort of like, like it was really good at. I was good at maths as well, maths and business studies. And then it sort of, I guess, um, manifested in terms of what I've gone on to study at um, CAS in terms of finance um, because I thought I'd be a hotshot banker working in the city, you know, popping bottles and what's the phrase? Popping bottles. I and, mean, Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, exactly. You know, but I, you know, I missed the boat there. So, um, no, but I, I'm, I'm only sort of messing around. So I, I did have a sort of interest, really. Um, and it's what I did at uni. Um, and with hindsight, to be honest, you don't really need to study finance to go into finance, really. You know, there's plenty of people that do history degrees and do accounting qualifications afterwards, really. That's, so, a, that's a great advice for a lot of people. If there's any young people listening, you know, like they always say, do what you want to do and do, follow your heart. And it may sound like s- sentimental and like sappy, but it is kind of true as well. Yeah. I, I mean, I usually keep the last section for all the advice, but you're just throwing all of them out there right I'll now. So we're going to have plenty more coming up, but <laughs> it, it is quite relatable. I'm here all afternoon, you know. Yeah, you're stuck with me. Um, no, but it is a quite shared sentiment, not just in finance, but a lot of people, when they look back and they're like, did I really need to know all of this to like, do what you can do today? It's not always yes. It's not a, like obvious you have to do this to begin with. That's the thing. Like if I had a time machine, I'd go back and change it. You know, and that's probably the same with a lot of people as well. You know, yeah, so I'd, I'd do something different, and you know, my career wouldn't be what it is now. But um, what's interesting is that like when you're saying you did the business studies for your GCSE, it's it was like an optional. You didn't nobody forced you to take that one, and um, that's basically how optional courses work. Yeah. Um. So how how deep are we talking about? Is it more like an introductory course? Is it more just general business? Did they give you all these curves that I keep on seeing on when people study business? Um. I mean, you learn like basic kind of like really yeah. basic. Terms. Are we talking about like supply and demands, for example? Is that? Yeah, kind of. But that's more economics. More, but you more learn in terms of like um, really sort of basic uh, information about um, corporate structure, how companies work, uh, types of markets, um, things in terms of like ba- really basic management theory, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and. Um, work like by Peter Drucker but it's very like on a very kind of like basic level you know it it's kind of like introduction because you're essentially 14 15 and you're learning these things for the first time yeah so um I just it wasn't really a thing I, I just did it I think because you kind of especially with the UK education system you kind of um have to sort of pick and choose what you want to do yeah, you, the, you test the waters a bit. Yeah, and you know, you're, like, you're not keen on that subject, but you can't do that subject because your timetable clashes. So it's, yeah. it's, it's sort of like a lot of it is putting square pegs and round holes as well. And yeah, and the, the, I think the, the thing I remember is I, I just was really good at it. I'm, I'm not really bragging here. But. No, but I mean, like the fact that you remember <laughs> being able to list all the actual content and it just means that not only did you, I guess, were good at it, but also you kind of had an interest in it. As in like, you could be good at something, but if you don't have passion for it, you don't really remember anything as a guy. Yeah, I, th- I think it's also like the very like you know stereotypical immigrant background of like coming. <laughs> Tell this, me about it. It's coming to this country and like you know, you know, what do you do to like make it in the world? You join, you get into professions, or you become a business person, and you 
yeah. move up in society, that uh, kind of thing. We could definitely dive into at some point how finance in the real world looks like, because obviously you have loads of point of view on it. So that's going to be really fun. So um, after, after doing that, after doing your GCSE, and then you said you mentioned you went uh, to Cass Business School. Was that uh, was a major there, I guess, right in line with what you've done with that business studies or? Um, As in, what was your major, basically? It was finance. But what I guess you learn in finance is um, it's a very broad subject. So, yeah, can I mention that real quick? Because I do when people say finance, that includes accounting, that that includes auditing, that includes credit control, that includes all kinds of stuff. Can you give, I guess, everybody like a big picture of what finance in terms of departments or in terms of categories of finance or even in a company, different roles? What what is finance, I guess? That's a good question. I guess, you know, you, you ask what finance is and it's essentially the capital markets that we've had for the past, I guess, three, four centuries in terms of um, you have individuals that have capital. Mm-hmm. And it's what they do with that capital. And it's that investment into either equity or debt and how that manifests into, you know, the economy. Um, so that's kind of like the holistic view of what finance is. And you can branch that off into various things because, you know, in the past three, four centuries, we've had lots of financial innovation and um you have things like accounting that's been there since like you know the babylonian times like you have double entry bookkeeping um and you but you have really modern stuff like derivatives and options right um which comes which has sort of come across because of like the the financial contract between investors and people that are sort of receiving capital has evolved over time so you've got a mix it's very broad and what finance what you study especially at a university level is a very broad thing because it could be it, it goes from like economics or macro and micro econo- mm-hmm. economics in terms of you know how uh, resources are allocated on a macro level in terms of a national economy and on a micro level in terms of individuals you've got accounting which is uh, between financial accounting which I guess looks at the accounting of a corporate or a company or a firm and then you've got management accounting which looks at a much more granular basis in terms of how a company is affected by cost, how it sort of does its transactions on a monthly basis. And you've got things that relate to the financial markets itself. So you've got the, the bond market, yeah. the equity market, um, the derivative market. It's, you know, people are like, what do these people do in the city? And, you know, there's like hundreds and thousands of jobs there. And, you know, you've got it's, it's, it's like a multitude of things, really. And I think that's also, you know, I've had to explain to a lot of people in terms of what finance is about and what kind of things happen. It just goes to show that there really isn't much education in terms of, especially, I guess, on the younger level. My, my follow-up question, actually, is that you've given us so much gold so far. How oh, I'm done now. <laughs> I'm just going to pack yeah. up and go. Don't go, don't go. <laughs> How much of this did you know by the time you graduated with that program, I guess? By the time you graduated, how much of, I guess, this distinction between all these facets was clear to you? I mean, you, you do get the theoretical knowledge, but you also get, I guess, um, but a lot of it comes afterwards. Like, you know, they talk about like life experience and like learning from other people that are, you know, 
been there, done that. that yeah. that's, that's worth its weight in gold. And you don't really get that in the classroom. Exactly. A lot of times when you are studying that thing, when we talk about Wolf of Wall Street, it's because they, I mean, movies, and then they take... I haven't seen very... that. I've seen seen Wall Street, the original with Michael Douglas. That's yeah. a good film, but not Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, man. You're a fitness guy and you haven't seen it. Outrageous. I mean, Yeah, but I think that's... No, can't blame you on it. Um, but I guess it's relatable for people in software engineering because, like, I'm a software engineer, yeah, and sure. when people talk about it, they're like, what is software engineering? Um, do you, yeah. like, a lot of people confuse it with IT, for example. Yeah, even though IT is technically for it doesn't piss me off okay. it's just different <laughs> but it's just that like in software engineering you have like people working on mobile apps people working on web apps people work, working on desktop apps it's, it's all different like environment within that umbrella of software engineering We're yeah but I think with that. software engineering it, it kind of like it just works like I think that the roles and what people do and the industry just works but when finance and when it like goes tits up yeah it has ramifications on an economy and on society. And politically, it has impact as well. Exactly. So you have, like, the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Like, yeah. It, like, and even one more recently, as well, mini one recently. Exactly. So. It destroyed, like, the economy of, like, Iceland, Ireland, all because, like, you know, financiers were packaging up. Yeah. And the, the concept that I was talking about, when you're mentioning all these scenarios of uh, loans, mortgage, bonds, and all that, People yeah. were loaning money to each other since throughout time. Like back in the day, people were loaning money. Yeah, and it's also this you just concept. have to read Shakespeare. Like you know, the Merchant of Venice is all about that. You know, you got the money lender there. That was the, I guess the, uh, I won't say antihero, but the antagonist, Shylock. You you know, you have it in history that money lenders exist, and it's kind of like it's a double-edged sword because. Um, People don't want to be ripped off, but... Are you sure? I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain <laughs> of that. People don't want to be ripped off, so, you know, they, you see that, you know, somebody's lending money and they're charging interest, and, you know, it's... They see that this angle of, like, okay, there's, there's also like, somebody being ripped off here, yeah. or... But it's a double-edged sword of, like, how do you get sort of capital allocated from people that do have money to invest in, but people that want to, like, set up their own businesses or you know invest or you know move forward in life really so yeah. it is a double-edged sword really in terms of how 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 capital is allocated and you know people have different views about it and, well of course everybody... and there's a lot of innovation nowadays in terms of like new entrants in the markets in terms of how companies and people raise money nowadays that just didn't exist like you know 10 15 years ago that's, that's a great point. And um, I guess like Aussie, uh, after, I mean, after doing uni, you definitely worked in different kinds of startups and all that. And when you work in startups, you have that kind of exposure to raising monies and all of it. Um, mm. But I just want to finish off the chapter where you said uh, you went to CAS Business School. Uh, I guess you definitely learned a lot of knowledge in terms of how you got different facets, facets and all that. But you also had a, a year abroad during that time. Yeah. Can you talk us more about that? And where was it? How exciting it was and how related it is um, to what you did? It was very exciting. It was at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and um, Urbana-Champaign is the name of the town. And where is Urbana-Champaign? Is it probably what everybody's thinking is essentially it's in the middle of central Illinois, right? surrounded by like miles and miles of cornfields, because that's, that's essentially <laughs> what they grow out there. And so in practical terms, it was three hours, I guess, drive south of Chicago. Okay. Um, so I don't know how much that would be, like miles, kilometers. Um, and it was it was great. I, I I grew up in London and I went to uni in London, but I wanted a bit of a a bit of a 
break and a bit of a different sort of environment. Um, so a year abroad option uh, was available, and mm-hmm. I could have literally gone to like any any most countries in the world actually, um, in the Far East, in like Europe, uh, America, Canada as well. Um, and I thought I'd go to America, see what all the fuss was about. So I had two options: at Atlanta or Illinois, and I decided to go to like the smallest town I could find. Yeah, but I mean, it's also good because you get a completely different shift of context, as you were saying. So you're learning business at Cass in London, yeah, doing, uh, I guess, business school, and then you have the year abroad. Um, were the topics quite similar? I guess you also had friends who were doing the same program still in London during that time. I mean, the university itself would like match it up in terms of like, you're, this is our partner institution, and kind and keep it the continu- the continued continuity of it flowing, but. In terms of like you know what you learn out there compared to what you learn over here, finance is uh, is a it's very international. Yeah. So you know otherwise you wouldn't have like business across borders between different countries and companies. Um, so if you get aside from the language barrier, there isn't much of a finance barrier. That makes sense actually. So currently, for the company I work for, as I said, we have a U.S. company as a subsidiary. Mm-hmm. So I will deal with our U.S. accountants in terms of uh, preparing our sort of filings for year end, um, and so communicating them is not an issue because you know they understand what I'm talking about in terms of terms and definitions and yeah. things, and they understand what I'm talking about. One one of the things that I always wanted to figure out actually is that um, when you go to school, a lot of the topics they'll relate it to events or examples in the i guess the location you're at so for example if you go to school and i went to school in canada a lot of the examples of the history stuff will be examples from canada yeah. did you notice that trend when you studied in the u.s that a lot of the examples will use like u.s companies to mark certain examples or that they still have kind of like a i guess broader range to cover that um it would depend on the class i mean um if you're doing an international economics class they'll, they'll talk about like you know latin american yeah. economies and stuff like that but in terms of like sort of finance accounting yeah it would overwhelmingly be American, um, which would only, and I remember there was like an investment portfolio class I was in where we had essentially a, a portfolio and the group of like 20 or 30 of us would invest and it would, event, it would Wait, overwhelmingly that? be on American like companies and okay. stocks. That was one single portfolio for everybody, or is it one each? No, no. So um, the details, the class itself, this was like a fourth year class. So this was like for seniors over yeah, there. About to graduate and. About to graduate, so for their final year, they had a portfolio class where um, they essentially had like a rich investor that decided to s- donate money to, for the university to say like, here is X amount, run a class, a portfolio class, invest that money. So I'm not sure what the person got out of it in terms yeah. of like actual like monetary gain. But you didn't see any of that profit. No, we didn't, from- but we get the experience of like actually uh, yeah. pitching real like investment recommendations and it could actually be invested in rather than sort of a like a fake virtual yeah like a like a like a what do they call like a hypothetical trading simulator or a portfolio that's not really um so you got what's called like skin in the game you know you're actually you know that's what i was gonna say because when you told me it was actually real money to i guess being put into full and everything 
Was that a common practice among business schools, or was it just specific? I guess your case that it happened. I can't say whether it was common or not. I, I, I it's definitely the first okay. I've ever heard of it. And um, I'm, I'm gonna find that out if I, if I get any other business students out there talking to me. I'm definitely gonna find that out if it's a common practice. Because I, I kind of like winged my way into it because I, sh- I shouldn't have been on that class, but I sort of came in and I, I saw that what the class was about, and because I was technically second slash third year, but this was like for yeah. fourth year students. Who, who have really done well, you know, you, you'd had to be like really good. So you just got early exposure. You just got premature exposure. Well, I, I just went, I remember going to the professor and like, the, the first week or so and just like went to his office and just like explained who I am and just sort of, I guess, blagged it really. Well, I mean, the lesson here is you got to reach out. The lesson here, you'll never know if you don't reach out. So I, The lesson is that, um, you know, a bit of charisma can go a long way. Oh man, <laughs> or, that's, a, that's a great or, advice. Or an, or an accent in a foreign country can, you know, Oh, I'm, I'm doing my best now, you know? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's great, actually. So, I mean, even before getting out of New you've, you've seen so much and, like, even gotten a chance to have realistic cases. Um, I think from that point, then, um, in terms of, did you, did you have, like, a mind fixed on what you what exactly wanted to do coming out of uni, or was it just see what's out there? And uh... I did. I, I, I did want to go into investment management, um, so asset management. So that essentially is um, what we did in that class, but on a bigger scale of firms uh, managing funds to invest in. So it could be in a variety of investments like equity, bonds or whatever to meet their clients' objectives. So that can be done on a retail level or like on a high net worth of an individual level as well. Like if these, none of these terms are meaning anything, just let me know. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think it's, it does make a lot of sense when you're saying um, in like asset management, that's, uh, I guess a lot of people do aspire to do that. And there are really that amount of opportunities out there to really tackle it. So when, when you graduate uni, what was your first, I guess, opportunity to, uh, I guess, work as an adult? <laughs> um, so like, I'm, I'm going to hold my hand up. I, did, I didn't get into asset management and it's, oh, all right. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I didn't. Um, so, it, um, which was it was disappointing because it was what I wanted to do when I mm-hmm. wanted to graduate, but um, it just didn't work out. And it's kind of like, okay, well, this sucks, but what can you do, really? But you still had like similar, I guess it wasn't exactly that, but you still managed to get knowledge to it as you did other kind of jobs. You still get the like knowledge of being able to do that kind of responsibilities as i guess so from from what i remember you told me you were like a data analyst when you came out so yeah so what i what i did in my first job was completely sort of unrelated in terms of finance at all um so i, I joined actually as a data assistant but was promoted to a data analyst eventually um oh, that's pretty cool and it was for a publication in essentially they were like in a shipping container in chelsea on the king's road Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've been to that part of town, but it's very sort of very plush, very nice, you know. And it was interesting because um, I think for a lot of people that they graduate, they go on a graduate scheme, and it's very kind of like structured. And what they do since then is, you know, yeah. Well, I didn't, but I'm. I definitely do know people who's done that path. Yeah, so it's very way. structured, regiment, and you're kind of like. It's, it's a natural progression of like you're getting mm-hmm. three years of university and then you're into like a two-year graduate program and you're continuing the structure of your career trajectory but i didn't it was a kind of like a startup environment that i went into so it was a very small company of so up to 15 people and they were 
a publication that published a variety of sort of news articles and uh, reports on sort of private finance initiative projects and renewable projects. And I was in a data team because they had a data package that so people that weren't going on there to look at their articles on, say, renewable projects could also log on to the database and find out about the renewable industry as well. But that's all these skills that are like translatable, even though you're not directly analyzing assets or not, but it's really just being have a analytical mind to begin with. And I guess that's really helps people shine at that point. But when you were mentioning like the mold of like going into uni and having these grad scheme program and all that, mm. I think that's like the ideal situation. I don't think realistically everybody gets into it. I personally, I've never done any internships during uni, which yeah. I guess was kind of part of the mold as well. You know, when you sure. go to uni during the summer, you do internship and then that. I didn't really fit into it. And then kind of same mindset when I got out of uni, it was more like, what now? Um, I obviously, I wanted to be the next Bill Gates or something like that. But if you look at how you've become, it's just a story that is quite relatable to I'm sure a lot of people out there that didn't fit exactly. I did the scratch scheme or anything, but you still managed to practice what you learned and analytical stuff at that point. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into like, um, what, what I call sort of you know wisdom about you know just just follow follow your dreams and it will work out and it it it, it helps to go on a grad scheme yeah. because not only having that structure but you are in an environment where you do learn from people um and if it is the industry or the company that you want to work for that's all the better because you know you're getting that exposure really early on yeah um but if it's if it doesn't work out you don't go into grad scheme it doesn't mean the doors you know the path's blocked or whatever you just yeah. have to go through a different door and Nobody has ever told me that, but I'll, I'll keep you that in mind. And it's, it's difficult because, um, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And if we all had time machines, we'll be all, you know, living like billionaires right now. But <laughs> it's, I think, a lot of people, especially young people who don't have, I guess, um, especially growing up in an environment where this sort of professional career is a common thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're, you're either your parents want, you know, white collar professionals or something, it's, it's quite difficult to know what the routes are, what the pathways are. And if you don't have, say, mentors as well. To, yeah, that's important. Yeah, to help you. So it can be difficult. It's not easy. There's a lot of stuff out there in terms of the internet now, definitely, that, you know, um, that wasn't there, say, like a couple of generations ago in terms of information. Um, so it does exist, but it's like, what are you looking at in terms of... Yeah. I think I think it's information. Really. It's definitely it's definitely true in terms of like if it's there, if you're able to do these scenarios, grad schemes, uh, and then or internships that leads directly to a job. That's like obviously the perfect story at that point. But I mean, you're able to pick up where, as you're saying, keep the doors open. Don't really say no to any opportunity for no good reason, and always push yourself out there because that's <laughs> that's exactly how life is at that point. Yeah. But what <laughs> I did want to ask you actually was that uh, was there a moment when you were doing uh, when you were data analyst in terms of something that wowed you in the I guess real life as opposed to being in school was there a moment where you're like so much data like so much information how um (laughs) or or i guess you could be perfectly fine when it's like you kind of expected if you really did expect this kind of i guess environment or context that could be perfectly fine as well to be honest i'm gonna say no really i think um i i i it just wasn't right for me um it was good in terms of the experience but um I think it also is about your interests as well, because you can have like reams and reams of data about like, anything you want, really. Yeah. You could, you know, set up a database about like vacuum cleaners 
I mean, and I would be pretty interested in that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if there's somebody out there who's going to be interested, it might be me at that point. So you can learn the data skills and then apply it to something that you're interested in. Fair enough. But if it's, you know, I wasn't particularly interested in terms of like the work the company did. So it just didn't really sell to me. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I had a finance background as well. So to my mind, it's, it was nice to try, but it wasn't really um, my cup of tea, which is... The shame, really, because uh, there's a lot of useful things that you can get to with data as well. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, they have loads of fields nowadays of like, you know, data analysts or data engineers specifically just for that. So you could have see the evolution to it. But at the same time, when you're talking about finance, it's always adaptable to so many cases and scenarios. So I guess there was another opportunity after that that you were able to use your analytical mind on top of your finance background. So was that was a credit controller role? That's when yeah, I joined Hirespace. Um, I think it was a few months after I went on holiday in America in between. Um, and then I came back and then joined Hirespace. And at the time, I think I was the first finance person that Hirespace hired. And it was a very small company as well, but I guess 20 people roughly, I think, at that time. Um, and yeah, just I looking, mean, looking back, yeah, go for it. No, I mean, like, that is, there's so many good things to, I guess, talk about in this case, because you were saying that being the first person joining a finance team, as in, Having a, having a startup and then having this role that opens up and creates. So from your point of view, I'm definitely going to dive into that, see how you start from there and then the impact of it. And also, like, I guess for the people who are just in the general picture, what, what is a credit controller or what did you do? What what some use cases that you ended up um, coming across there? Like for a lot of businesses, especially small ones, um, cash is the lifeline of, you know, the companies because if you don't have cash to sort of you know for operating costs you're you're not gonna you're not gonna succeed you're gonna go insolvent you can't pay your creditors you can't pay your bills but if you don't have any cash and it's unfortunate as well that there is an industry for credit control and um chasing debt because in an ideal world you just want companies to pay each other on time but we don't live in that ideal world unfortunately so that's where credit controllers come in um and essentially ensure that the cash is coming in so the business can continue to generate future growth and carry on trading. And is it fair to say that just credit control is a very important aspect or a major component of any finance team out there nowadays for any company, any sizes? Credit control is something that needs to be there. Well, I think it also depends on your business model because different businesses have different ways of collecting money and the different terms of payment. So if you're in a sort of very cash generative business where you're collecting the money at point of sale, then you're, 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 you're dreaming really because you don't really need to do much in terms of collections. Um, but a lot of businesses that have say 30 day t- terms, uh, which is common and it's just probably standard in industry. Um, it's not the same sort of, I guess, situation where you have that luxury because you're basically ensuring that you're trusting that the other party will pay you, say, on, on day 30 or earlier. And by and large, it is the case, but, you know, it, it depends on the industry itself that it's not the case. Um, and some industries are better than others, and some companies are better than others in terms of, um, I guess, collections. Like, DFA would be better because just the type of company it is in terms of where it is and who they're dealing with yeah that they wouldn't have much issues and say 
a smaller company. Other position as well, like yeah, exactly. Um, so, like for example, I'm in digital advertising right now, and it's just, it's just very kind of notorious that companies just don't pay each don't other. Don't pay, yeah. They just don't pay each other. They will run campaigns and um, essentially be like, "We're done with the campaign," and then sail off to the wind. Um, yeah. So, from I guess from a commoner's point of view, or like more in layman terms at this point, is that the use case would be um, you have some sort of contractual business with another company, and then. Yeah. They, the whole business happens and execute, but then you have one company not paying the other. And this is where kind of the credit control in to make sure that um, that amount gets, uh, I guess, gets paid at the end. Mm. I guess from your experience, you've definitely got the chance to see loads of it. What are the different methods or what are the different approaches? Imagine a smaller company out there and there's somebody else owing them money. How, what kind of options they have to, I guess, assure this contractual obligation? Sure, um, I guess... There's a variety of things. It's, I think communication is the most important thing. Um, you're doing your basics of like knowing who your customer, your KYC checks, knowing who your customers are, um, signing a, like a, a contractual agreement where it's kind of very kind of watertight in terms of what you're offering in terms of goods and services. And once it's raised, uh, the invoices are raised, and from there on, it's making sure that the invoices go to the right people and knowing what their processes are in place in terms of processing payment. So once you've done your kind of like background checks in terms of making sure everything's fine from the get-go, you're hoping that invoices are by and large processed on time, and they, they, they generally are. Um, so the worst-case scenario is where they don't, they don't get paid. It, it could be quite innocuous reasons in terms of, um, you know, a... The person that you're dealing on the other side has left the company and the person that's now come in is not aware of what's going on. They're not being like looped in on emails or whatever. Yeah. Um, other examples are that um, it could be the case of the company on the other side are just having problems with their cash flow at the moment and are, they want to pay you but they're just holding off paying you because they just can't at this moment of time. Um it's quite a minority of cases where you get companies are actively not wanting to pay you. It's more of a case of their businesses, I guess, performance isn't really susceptible in terms of paying you. But in the cases where they are not paying you, there are sort of steps you can take. Um, I think the credit controller itself is ensuring that communication is open. You're chasing them in terms of emails, telephone calls, getting a message to the right people finding out why payment's not being made and then trying to like resolve it. Um, there are options of like understanding in terms of if payment's not being made, can we offer, say, a payment plan, um, for example, or be in a situation where, I guess, take a hit. But uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of things that can be done. I mean, it is a very case-by-case -case, um, industry. There's not really, say, like a universal f formula that you can Yeah, like to. a step-by-step -step guide that are like, do this or that, do yeah. this or that. And it's also that a lot of, say, companies on the other side, say, especially the bigger companies, they have like very kind of like formulaic finance process in terms of payables, and it's, it can be very kind of time-consuming. So yeah. the reason why they haven't paid is that you haven't done like step seven out of a 10 or whatever or something that hasn't worked through. Exactly. And especially when we, I mean, we get exposure to working in all these kind of different startups. Everybody has their own case of like, whether they can pay money or they're waiting somebody else to pay their money. It's always something that uh, people have to consider at that point. So 
Yeah, definitely. And I think um, there's a lot going on in terms of collection now. Um, there's a lot of apps that people can utilize in terms of sending out reminders, um, ensuring that um, you have the software in place of seeing when invoices become overdue and to help small companies and especially startups. So there's, there's a lot that sort of you can use that plugs into say like, you know, Zero or QuickBooks. Yeah. And that pulls your accounting data and uses the data to find out who are sort of bad companies in terms of like paying on time and who are good companies. And you can modify your credit control strategy based on the company itself. That's so good because that obviously it's all about reputation at that point. And then if you're able to even keep that in check, not only will it have a obviously financial impact, but it'll have even like a social impact or if they're able to make this kind of ecosystem of knowing what company is good at this, good at that, it obviously helps with the brand at the end of the day. Definitely. So. And it's, it's a business relationship at the end of the day because I've always said that there's no point being or having a business relationship with a company that's not paying you. Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, you, can, you can generate all the revenue and the sales that will look all flashy. and But if, it's, if the cash isn't coming in the bank, then... Yeah. What's the point, really? I'm glad somebody said it. <laughs> somebody said that at that point. So, and also, I just want to point out that um, I guess if there are companies out there that really has to resort to the last issue, they do have help from either uh, le- legal help. I guess they have legal help or governmental help to solve any of these issues. Yeah, there are there are sort of tools, I guess, in terms of actual legislation that you can charge interest and penalty fines, and if it gets to a stage where they're not sort of budging you can get sort of legal debt collectors um that i've used before in the past uh, they can help out in terms of chasing and it kind of looks a bit more serious than rather than you're sending an email you know somebody from a debt, debt collection agency um is sending like a formal letter request it, it adds a bit of more gravitas about it um you can end up taking them to small claims court and just filing a form on hmrc's uh, or no.gov website um and take them to court and it it's not a it's a time consuming process it's not difficult there's definitely tools out there so if you know companies are having issues receiving payment from other companies as long as they're still trading there are a lot of steps that people can take to recover to the debts that's um that's actually pretty cool because we're still in the finance world we're still everything that we've you've studied and we've been talking is directly related to this but you don't really know the processes and how to do it until you actually get pitched into that situation to deal with it so that's the kind of exposure i guess when you come out because i mean in school nobody really teaches you like how to do any of these forms or any of these apps or all that so these are all real scenarios that you have to deal with when you yeah actually have i've a... heard that before it's like you know when you're in school and it's like oh nobody teaches you about taxes well, it's like, you're 14, do you actually want to learn about taxes? Yeah, is it know, relevant like, at that time to know? Everybody I, loves I think, taxes, um, right? I think there's obviously a, a, there's a time and place of learning these things, and you want, to be, you want to be learning in an environment where it's easy to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to be in an environment where, like, tax rules are complicated because it just, it just doesn't fit the purpose, really. Yeah, and... Um... Yeah, I mean, we could just have a really brief mention on taxes and companies, actually. So companies are encouraged to uh, keep all the receipts and everything for the purpose of they get some tax returns from it, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So I guess for the people that don't exactly know what this concept is, even for the small companies, what's the benefit of um, this? You're, if you're VAT registered, you're VAT registered over, I think it's 85,000 turnover a year. So if you're 85,000, if you generate 85,000 uh, of sales every year, you have to get VAT registered. And value-added tax is 
not really like sales tax that you have in other countries. Um, you're thinking, say, I think a, a really simple example is just look at the chain of, say, like a radio that's been produced. Mm-hmm. Um, also, something more simple, actually. I'm trying to think of something that you pour like materials to make. Yeah, just any object, any anything that you could buy and make. <laughs> yeah, so this mug that I'm holding. Yeah. Um, say if you're a mug manufacturer, you obviously need to source the materials for the mugs, whatever it is, the ceramics or the the clay or whatever, and buy the raw materials. So you'll be buying the raw materials from another company and that would have a tax on it, value-added tax. Mm-hmm. You can reclaim that tax element of it because it's a purchase that you're making to produce something. So you produce the mugs and then you sell it to your consumer and that consumer will buy the mug for like five pounds plus VAT. So it's be, you know, five pounds. Yeah. So uh, five, six pounds essentially. Um, and then you, as a seller, would have to pay HMRC the VAT on that. It should sort of cancel. And then the tax man will take the difference between the, the VAT at the, the higher end of the change and then de- deduct it from the lower end of the change. And then whatever that difference is, you pay the, the VAT tax. So that's why it's called value-added tax, because every step you're adding value on the transaction does this make sense? I hope I'm... Yeah, correct. Because, I mean, there's multiple steps to begin with. You're starting with different ingredients, and then you end up manufacturing a product, and then you sell the product to the consumer, and then yeah. the person that buys it. And all these steps, all this value that you added to it, yeah. that's how you have that value-added tax. And it's definitely encouraged for any business out there to get your VAT returns just because uh, it's tax money that you have paid, but you could return them uh, through these encouraging programs at the... Of course. Government. I mean, I think most companies will... Um, if they're not, they will have like an accountant who will explain that if you are making revenue of that amount, you need to be registered VAT and then file VAT returns. Yeah, that's one of the great things of working at startups. You get well, I don't work in finance to begin with, but I get exposed to all these kind of scenarios, and I'm just happy to learn about all this stuff. But um, but speaking of working in startups, there was quite a shift after that. So after working at Hirespace, you did uh, work for the Football Association, the FA, as we all know it. And that's correct. It is, is it correct to say that that is not a startup? That is correct. It's not a startup. <laughs> I think I went from working from a company of thirty people to a company of like eight hundred people. So it's it's quite a it's quite a big shift in terms of um, the size. And obviously, we're based at Wembley Stadium. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think before before joining, I didn't even know those offices at Wembley Stadium. I was gonna say because like <laughs> I don't think most people know that the FAs. HQ is at Wembley Stadium, but I mean, I guess from your point of view, I mean, like, they spent sort of eight hundred million pounds on the stadium. You think <laughs> they'll like bung in a few offices inside? Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about what it looks like in there. But I guess what what did you come in as? Like, um, I guess what was your role there? What kind of responsibilities you had to do at the the FA? Um, so the finance team, because it's such a big organization, and with like a lot of big organizations, you are like a cog in the machine, and the finance team is say the machine and within that cog is the receivables cog and with receivables essentially is the money that's coming into the FA and within that I was part of the cog that is um, collections for there's three companies for the FA that they have three limited companies and it was the collections for those three without the Club Wembley stuff and Club Wembley is the corporate packages and hospitality that they offer right so I would have been doing credit control, invoice raising, receivables, uh, accounts receivable, just general accounts receivable stuff for the three companies off the FA. 
And that's for any events happening at Wembley, whether it be a concert, would be a football match, whether it be anything. Yeah, but that's that was just a f like a sliver of like the overall business. So you had like the event side at Wembley Stadium, so to do concerts and football events. But there was also the Football Association Limited, which was what we expect the FA to do, managing the national game with sort of a county associations, football clubs. And then you have the other smaller side of the business, which is the NFC, the National Football Centre, which is a new training centre up in Burton. Um, but yeah, so it was a wide, wide sort of, it's a massive company, but in terms of like the scope of the role, very, very wide. And yeah. I think that was what we used to do before. Um, so, I mean, considering the background you had before joining it, it was quite suited in terms of like being able to adapt all these different situations of account receivables and... Yeah, I guess so. Um, I didn't really find it daunting in the sense, in terms of what it was. I guess doing my finance degree, um, you sort of learn a wide variety of things that we talked about earlier. Yeah. And what? it sort of prepares you, I guess, going into an environment where there's a, like a wide things, things to work on. That's the thing. Um, one thing that I, from, I guess from my point of view, is that uh, when you have people coming out of school and all that, when you get the opportunity to deal with this big amount of money, I guess, mm. what's the effect on you? Is it awing or, or also like the pressure? Is there, was there any kind of pressure in terms of messing up? Or in, I guess like what, what kind of range of money we're talking about, I guess? Is it like in the billions? I don't think it was in the billions, but like what? Um, there was definitely pressure and I did mess up a couple of times. I'm not, I'm not perfect and um, I'm probably going to leave it at that. Um, but in terms of the, the, the scope, I mean, I think the FA's turnover roughly is like 300 million. So, Jeez, all yeah, right. massive. Um, and, you know, they, they have the calendar in terms of fixtures for England home games and the FA Cup final, which are big, big events. But in the summer, you have the concert season and you have, God, I'm going to sound really uncool and name on, uh, like, you know, Bon Jovi and uh, I'm trying to think who else came. <laughs> Yeah. Like Coldplay, Ed Sheeran, um, I think Spice Girls as well, like really like big like pop pop uh, stars, and they would rent the stadium out, and it would cost sort of six figures. No, sorry, seven figures actually. Um, Jeez, that six, is. seven figures, yeah. Um, so in terms of did I did I find it Oris mine? Not really. I think um, just numbers at the end of the day. I think it is just numbers. You sort of get desensitized to it, and. You, you know, at higher space, you went. I wasn't dealing with these kind of numbers that they deal with the FA. You know, the, the size of the invoices weren't comparable at all. Um, you know, the commercial contracts that the FA have with yeah. sort of broadcasters, sponsors, licensees, they're massive, they're huge numbers. And you kind of just go in there and just think, oh, it's just a number. It's just a number on the screen. <laughs> Obviously, it means a lot in terms of actual practicality but you don't you don't see that you yeah. don't see those numbers and conceptually you're plugging numbers here and there it doesn't matter what the number is you're just plugging numbers over there and then i i guess so i mean um an invoice raised for 100 pounds is going to be raised the same way for an invoice for a million pounds and you it's know, also... just going to make sure that the decimal place is in the right place otherwise you know you can get <laughs> It's also that confidence and also the experience of being able to handle this situation that probably justifies why, I guess, you wouldn't be completely stressed out or awed out by being exposed to, hey, this invoice is a couple of million dollars. <laughs> no, you there was definitely the pressure of, you know, you had the responsibility of making sure that the commercial contractual money comes in, but it's, it's not, 
Well, you're going to lose sleep over it every night just because. You can't, but the thing is, it's not an environment where you should just pin it all on one person because they have a commercial department at the FAA and they're, they're the ones signing the contracts with, you know, with these companies, these third-party companies. And if it's a case of not paying, it's obviously me finding out why they're not paying and trying to get them to pay. But, yeah, of course. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be utilizing the commercial team over there to sort of help along because they're the ones having the business relationship. And it's quite difficult because, especially at the FA, there's a lot of politics as well in terms of... If um, I can imagine. Yeah, it's... Because um, they're the ones sort of, you know, the, the ones in the commercial department are the ones doing the wining and dining and, you know, they're, they're taking... Clients. Clients out of big fancy restaurants with, you know, uh, big extensive menus and you're not there. So there is that element of their sort of trying to smoothing and being on their good sides. Yeah. But it's, it's the thing that we talked about earlier. It's like, why be in a business relationship with someone who's not paying you? You know, they're, they're essentially using you. They, I'm not saying what they did was this, but I'm saying that you're in an environment where somebody's utilizing your services or using your name or whatever, and you're not getting paid for it. Yeah, and it really needs to know the behind the scenes to really get the grasp of it. But what I do want to transition, actually, when we were talking about earlier, we were talking about startups, the environment, like quite cozy, smaller teams, Everybody knows each other. What did that look like in, a, I guess, a more bigger company, major company like the Football Association? Did you, um, did you find some similarities in smaller teams where people are really close-knit? Or was it more like corporate, uh, heads down, do your thing? What was the lifestyle, I guess? Um, I think it shifted in terms of the sort of the ownership, which sort of changed in terms of the management over the time. Uh, initially, it was very kind of like uh, jovial and much more close-knit. And then towards the end, it wasn't. And... It's a difficult one because you can't really choose who you work with. Yep. You kind of like have to go in a, in a workplace and then hope that the people you get along with, you don't, you don't rub them off the wrong way and they don't rub you off the wrong way and that causes tension. Um, I think, by and large, most people are nice people to be around. There's obviously, <laughs> you hope so. <laughs> there's obviously a few bad apples in the barrel and it's you can be in a situation where things can be toxic for whatever reason. Um, I think, does it compare in terms of, sort of, say, startups or a bigger organization? I think it will just depend on the people, to be honest, and especially from the top. Right. So it's how the people at the top, how do they behave, and how do they sort of, how does it trinkle down into sort of like... um, so the, how yeah, they treat the, like, yeah, the, how the they atmosphere treat like, and how you see between yeah, each how other. they treat junior staff and how they sort of behave in terms of their management style. Um, and I, th- I don't think there's a difference between say big companies or smaller companies. I think it just depends on who who's in there really. That, that's a good way to look at it. Um, and if we talk specifically about like perks and stuff, like I, did you have any uh, significant perks that uh, the FA? I guess for example, we had pool tables. We had. Uh, I guess avocados here and there at higher space, and mm. um, I guess at the FA, did they have anything similar or? Well, we had free FA Cup final tickets. Uh, That's a great perk. <laughs> um, we also had a free England tickets as well, which isn't probably yeah. comparable. And uh, I guess the lifestyle, like free lunches here and there, it's just uh, something that I guess some people would be interested in knowing. Yeah, well, I guess there would be sort of social events where you don't have to pay things for things. So like um, we did one of those um, escape room things. We did a um, bowling event. We did sort of various sort of social things and, you know, there'd be team lunches. 
And then um, beers, obviously, after work once in a while. And... Yeah, there'd be sort of other social things like that as well. Um, it, it's I don't think it's comparable to to a, a startup. I think startups are much more in tune in terms of what yeah. uh, their employees want. And I think the type of person that would work at the FA would be typically older or may, and have like family. And comparison to someone at a startup who's probably just say moved to London in their twenties and you know don't, doesn't have that sort of commitments or responsibilities are just looking to like enjoy themselves more. That's the thing. So I think the type of employee was definitely different. Um, it's not to say like the FA was boring. There was you know fun people there and you could have you know fun times with certain people, but I think they just attract a different type of employee. Yeah, of course, because, um, well, at least they do think about having these experience between the team, I guess. Even if it's a much older company and much bigger there, they do also put the emphasis on getting it going. But um, we could we actually just talk about um, what you're doing nowadays at your latest role. So you're a finance manager at uh, Avocet. Yeah. And then... Um, yeah. yeah. So in terms of digital marketing and all that, and how, I guess, how, how, how's the shift? How's the shift from going from a startup to association i'm guessing i've said could be called more of a startup than an actual yeah it is definitely company. a startup and I, I, th- I think towards the end of fa i was looking to move on and it was a case of what do i do next and i remember my time at higher space quite fondly and i thought definitely want to work for a startup again it's just the environment i much prefer um and in terms of uh, your, what you actually do day to day is it quite similar all like across all three roles or was there always something like well, it's a very small company, so it's, it's 10 people, and similar to Hirespace, I am, I was the first, I am the first finance employee, um, and they previously used um, a couple of accounting firms, which I won't name, that didn't go well in terms of doing the, the work that the company asked for, so they thought, let's get somebody in, um, thankfully they hired me. Um, well, justifiably, so. <laughs> just, hopefully. Um, so in terms of the, the it's, it's much broader. So I would guess I'm, I'm currently in what would be considered a financial controller position, maybe a CFO position if I'm bragging in terms of... Um, I guess responsibility and what you need to be able to do and what you... Well, yeah, I, I think well, I think CFOs are probably a bit too step far, but definitely in terms of managing the bookkeeping on a day-to-day basis, receivables, purchases, payroll as well now, expenses, um, just everything in terms of the financial operations. Yeah. Of, um, if you want to talk about finance in like a company, you have finance and it's branched down to like the operational side in terms of what you do on a transactional basis, day-to-day bank reconciliations, uh, bookkeeping, raising invoices. And then you've got the sort of, I guess, commercial side of finance where you're analyzing the business's finances to see where you can make efficiencies, savings. Um, you're also analyzing numbers in terms of what, how the, the, finance, the financing of the company should be structured in terms of equity yeah. and debt raising money whether that's through sort of angel investors vcs um bank institutions even yeah you name it there's a lot of capital out there (laughs) so and you definitely need somebody who's been exposed to all these kind of different like scenarios even if you haven't like obviously had your hands deep in every single one of them it's not only that you have the background of going to school and all that but also being able to actually see them real use cases that you actually got to manage so i guess um, that is a very exciting project for you going on at the moment. Um, Definitely. One thing I do want to get into is, um, I guess there's, uh, 
the kind of like the structure of how you work kind of thing. There was a period I remember that you weren't doing a, I guess a full-time like nine to five kind of period. So how did that lifestyle looks like for somebody that uh, I guess getting into finance? Like if, for example, the classic when you get into a, I guess, full-time role is nine to five, uh, well, nine to six probably nowadays. Um, you go to work and everything. So how, how did that uh, lifestyle affect you and how did you manage that in the past couple of years? So you're talking about currently? Uh, currently or even before yeah so high space i was part-time i remember um and then the the fa was a full-time gig and then now it's i'm back to part-time again and i think it's the the bigger organizations don't realize it but there's a lot of technology out there in terms of accounting and finance that you essentially don't need the manpower um you can get technology to help you out i mean we use packages that tie into zero so zero is i think every man and their dog is using zero now in terms of accounting software especially if you're a sme um, but there's a lot in terms of the ecosystem that the uh, zero has in terms of its marketplace in terms of plug-in apps and uh, third-party software that pulls your financial data from zero and you can use it for say payroll or expenses or receivables or purchasing um for example we use a plugin called receipt bank um they're based in shoreditch actually not far from where we are and they do our purchasing for us where if we have a purchase invoice for say an invoice that comes in that we need to pay we would uh input it into receipt bank software and they will just essentially use ai and machine learning to pull the information from the invoice and do all the data entry for us so at the FA, they would get an invoice that comes in and someone would manually type in the data yeah. into the software. Like, this is the invoice date. This is the amount. This is the description. And nowadays, you can just get software that does it for you. And it's not just sort of purchasing. There's a variety of sort of software out there. So there's a lot of exciting changes in terms of what's going on out there in terms of accounting, um, apps, and software that hopefully should hit the mainstream really yeah but it also allows you to be more flexible on your own time given that there's tools out there too it is i mean it is a like a double-edged sword where you don't want to you don't want to end up becoming unemployed because you know the machines end up doing your work um so if there is anyone that's sort of wanting to go into industries definitely utilize these tools but also find out what can you can add value in yeah. terms of your input your sort of experience of like financial analysis and uh, I guess running things very efficiently, um, having that sort of clarity in your mind of knowing what a finance function ought to look like and how things, I guess in terms of processes, how things ought to be efficient. Exactly, as well. yeah. I mean, people who know me, I'm obsessed with processes. So oh. <laughs> I, just being ex- I, guess, I guess being exposed, the exposure and all that, that kind of really just builds up the term experience at the end of the day. And I don't think any machine is going to be able to justify human experience at the end of the day. So, I mean, not exactly true with all the models coming out, but that's another topic for another time. Um, what is interesting that you did mention previously is raising funds. Um, raising mm. funds in terms of, from a startup scene, I don't think you have to raise funds for FA. Maybe some scenarios you'll have to raise funds for FA, but that's slightly different. The FA would mostly get their money from contractual contracts that they have. So... Right. They've got a broadcasting agreement with like BT and BBC. Yeah, so that's where they'll get their revenue from. They'll get a grant from Sport England, which is a quasi-public fund money, I guess, really. And then a lot of their other income would be from their Club Wembley seats, so their corporate hospitality seats as well. Okay, that does make sense, actually. 
um, what's interesting, I think, for a lot of people actually, from a smaller scene on the startups bit, where uh, there's a lot of people who are considering VCs or people that consider bootstrapping, which is not taking any funds, or uh, actually, I guess, sharing a part of the project with these investments, uh, people mm. who are ready to invest. So, I guess, I mean, considering all your experience, what is your point of view on a point of view on it? As in, should people stick to just not taking any funds, or should they actually consider that as like a must? To, to be bigger. I mean, it's all very well. I've, I've, I'm not a founder, so I haven't sort of set up my company and saying like, you should do this and you should yeah. do that. But no, my, I think it's just my, my point of view. I guess, yeah, but like. my my thing is, is you'd rather I'd, you'd rather own fifty percent of something that's worth something than hundred percent of something that's not owned something. If Fair. that makes sense. So, I think it's all in terms of say an individual's person's if they're an entrepreneur and setting up their business what do they want to get out of it is it something where they eventually do want to sell up in a few years time is it something that they actually it's their passion and want to do for you know the foreseeable future for decades and decades um is it something that they want to do but um i guess would happily go in arrangement with say another company or, or a vc firm it's um yeah, it's a very case by case thing. Yeah. And my 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 thinking is definitely that you, it's better to be a part owner of something that's worth a lot than a hundred percent owner of something that's worth not a lot. Perfect. And it also depends on somebody if you, they have previously done it or not already, and then they get to make these decisions of being a hundred percent owner of something. As sure. To, um, but it's quite rare because a lot of like um, most startups that you see, um, especially like the unicorns that you see in terms of fintech like Monzo and Revolut. Um, they they've got VC funding. They've, yeah. they've got big money in terms of American money or European venture capitalist funds investing in them, um, and even smaller smaller players. Um, there's a lot of money out there in terms of investors, um, and it's a lot, it's attractive for investors for a lot of reasons. They get tra- tax relief in terms of EIS schemes. Um, there's not a lot going on in terms of. Um, interest rates so interest rates are very low at the moment for the past 10 years so and if you're an investor it's like where do I put my money to get a return yeah um, so it's, it's attractive in that sense as well and always people like the romantic thing of like oh this is going to be the next Google yeah you know I'm going to invest in this and that's it job done I'm going to be oh man yeah. and then like at that point even if you retire or not you still have something to look forward to and then you can just always play more at that um Actually, I want to I want to dive just real quickly into like I guess the logistics behind it in terms of, um, I mean it might not be a hundred percent true for every single VC pitching out there, but mm-hmm. I guess what is the general steps in terms of do you have to open your books every time you approach a VC or I guess what kind of documents kind of they ask for or I'm- oh definitely I mean like for a venture capitalist they're going to do their due diligence they're going to have a I guess it, it's going to depend on who it is but they will have a, a checklist of what they want in terms of information and definitely financial information will be up there um, they want to know what your sort of revenue is what's what are your costs been what are your projected revenues going to be what's your monthly revenue what's your sort of burn rate in terms of cash we you know how yeah. much cash are you going through on a monthly basis um, because from their perspective they are investing in something that's quite risky because presuming that they don't know who you are um, they're going to have to ascertain who you are first. And once they do know who you are, like, is this person worth investing in? Is this, is this company, is it unique? Is it going to like, generate the sales, the revenues? Um, so there's a lot of questions. And, you know, um, 
so many factors. Everything. Yeah, it's, it's it's yeah, it's quite rare to like you know jump into bed to someone straight away. You know, yeah. you gotta you gotta get the steps that lead there. Really. Wine and dine, <laughs> wine and dine first. That's yeah. really that's really good because I mean this is happening every day, especially because we got to live the you know in London where it's so many companies and everybody's facing this kind of issue. It's always good to have discussion going on. Yeah, on definitely. And I process. think um they they also look in terms of like if you're an, if you're a um a person that's entrepreneurial and you've got a business and an idea what's your passion in this yeah exactly you know Super are, you, important. are you really like committed to this is this something that you're going to like quit your job over or is this something that you're just really doing on the side um so there's there's a i mean they're not they're not idiots they've, they've got their sort of i guess due diligence criteria in terms of what they're looking for and, and I guess whether you tick the boxes is, yeah. is another question really and i guess it's for the better for both sides because that also gives the opportunity to a person seeking funds to actually ask the questions and not be shy about approaching i guess unknown territories at that point so um but yeah i think what, what's important also for i guess uh for the people who are i guess looking at going kind of the same path as you do do you have any advices for them or anything that you can mention whether it be good or bad advice that you I, I don't know i think um if I had a time machine, I said this again, if this is this wouldn't be the path I would have taken really, but I'm here now. So I wouldn't want to say like this is what you gotta to do to get here. Um I think the most important things I can say is just keep learning, always keep learning. Um and not just like through the usual medium of like books, classes and sort of I guess the internet, but also from other people. Um because, you know, I, I look back and People say nowadays, like, I'm, I'm really good on the phones, but I, I didn't always used to be. And I remember from my first job, there was a guy that joined and he was really good on the phones. Um, and I think he was from somewhere ridiculously random, like Corsica or somewhere. <laughs> and um, and I just remember how he just used to speak on the phone with these kind of, like, confidence and just the way he sort of approached it. And it's not like I just sat there taking notes, I just sort of like eavesdropped on this conversation and just kind of like how his body language was, the kinds of things he said, and I just took that on board. And it's really random because that's, it's like, you know, you don't, I don't think it's innate, you don't just become good at phones, you have to like learn how to sort of speak on a telephone and it's something I picked up from him. Yeah. And you can't really read that from a book or something, I think. Exactly. So I think that there's always opportunities to like learn from somebody even if it's tiny things like that, in terms of how some the person carries themselves, or um, yeah, also it just could be like written things. So if you see someone that writes emails that you like in a particular way, what do they use? What's their opening? What's their closing? You know that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, th- I think in terms of advice, I, I don't want to say you know do this or do that to get into this or that. I think. Um, well, I think that was a great advice to begin with, in terms of just. Learning from the best, learning from the best, learning the best practices. Well, it doesn't have to be there. the best because, like, I don't think the good. <laughs> just, just if you see them as good, that somebody does yeah. in a good way, it's like, why, why, why not take it on board, really? Exactly. Because there's always something that you can always do better. Like, if you're cooking or something, you know, why not watch like Gordon Ramsay and see what he does or something? Yeah. Um, it's like, okay, you just pick up like a little tip there. Okay, it's like, okay. It's like little minor things, really, that yeah. you can pick up. And, and I like think from incremental changes that become like your behavior pattern if you take it on board and internalize it. And also, like, just because of all these good advice from, I guess, an advice to yourself or for myself when I think about it is being able to re- be, reproduce this to somebody else. If ever I do, am able to 
be this kind of uh, good practice good practitioner of anything and somebody else can get inspired from it i think that's important from your point of view and also from my point of view at the end so um this is all amazing is there anywhere that people could follow you what kind of what kind of stuff do you social feed anything oh no um i used to be on twitter but i just used to get arguments with random people like you know just yeah i just thought it was a waste of time um i'm on instagram but i don't really want people following me so that's all you can good. find me on linkedin i'm on linkedin so you know oh guys check it out on linkedin Hit this was up. uh this was i on the podcast admin thank you so much for being on the show no worries you're welcome thank you